Measurement accuracy is something all quantitative researchers strive for, as you want to make sure you're measuring what you want to be measuring. When it comes to gathering gender and sex data, though, measurement's complicated. Beyond simply teasing apart sex and gender, there's also the imperative to ensure the language and measurement tools researchers use are inclusive of all experiences. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guests today are Duty Roy and Suzanne Thornton. Roy is Senior Principal Therapeutic Area Methodology Statistician at Boranger Ingelheim. She's currently focused on research and methodological applications of Bayesian statistics, artificial intelligence, and machine learning on clinical efficacy analyses, patient adherence, and dose finding. Thornton is professor of statistics at Swarthmore College. As an educator, she strives to teach students to understand stats as the language of science and prepare them to become stewards of the discipline. In 2020, she chaired an ASA presidential working group on LGBTQ plus representation and inclusion in the discipline. And earlier this year, she was appointed to a three-year term to serve on the National Advisory Committee for the U.S. Census. They are also both two of the co-authors of an article for Significance magazine about best possible statistical practices for sex and gender data. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. (laughs) I just to get us started, what prompted this article? So what what prompted this uh, article, from my perspective, um, was conversations with other statisticians were the catalyst that that put this into action. But I had an an experience as as I identify as a queer woman. And in graduate school, I came out as a queer woman. And as I started to learn more about LGBTQ plus history and uh, vocabulary and culture and experiences, I am also learning uh, my training in, in theoretical statistics. And so these questions were sort of coinciding in my, in my mind as uh, questions about fundamentally, um, how do we draw conclusions about unknowns from data, what is observable. At the same time, I'm also learning about different um, ways of human expression, different experiences, and the language that's associated with that. And, and I saw a, a fundamental disconnect in the way that we talk about um, gender and sex uh, in very kind of uh, offhandedly in, in many statistics examples, problems, textbook problems, and, and actually in applied research as well. You know, it's, it, it's interesting because this is often the, uh, this, this was the starting place for the simple dichotomous example Right, and, right, and all right, you know, and all these introductory books from from years gone by. So, mm-hmm. so perhaps it would be helpful to just just step back and and talk a little bit about when when you're talking about about gender or about sex data, it, it could put this into a little bit of, of context, particularly in a context of not only just social construct, but also in terms of kind of gradient of response. Uh, th- that's right, and um, this is also very interesting from my side because. While Susie was uh, discussing her reasons, I was also thinking, what are what are my reasons? And and something which I want to start with is, you know, my work is in the world of drug development. Uh, so I work in a pharmaceutical company. And for every trial uh, that we build and run for patients, we are collecting a number of information about these individuals. And one of them is sex. 
Mm-hmm. And it is dichotomous. It's male or female. And uh, I was working on uh, trials for mental health patients. And it is a known uh, fact that some of our mental health patients uh, are at more risk uh, of some adverse events, especially for if they're on the transgender spectrum. And yet here I was, uh, a statistician building this trial, wondering how on earth would I know this? Because uh-huh. there is no way of capturing this data. And this is this real example that I can provide. Something which science faces, because we hear from transgender patients, their healthcare experience, their journey, and it's harrowing. Mm-hmm. There, There is no gender inclusive language that are taught to our, our clinicians or to the investigators or our site personnel. They handle these patients. They don't know how to talk to them. Forget about recording their uh, their data accurately, and and this is important, right? Because people who are at higher safety risk get treated differently. They are given mm. extra care, but you would need to know that first before you go there, right? And this really was another pointer for me to to think. Well, we are the data people. Can we do more? Uh, push for more, and and this really got me started. And there Susie, uh, Susie was there and then we connected, we talked and we thought, what would we do? And here we are. And I, I think also in, in, in response to your question about, uh, you know, what are, what are some of the different measurements that we typically use and, and categorizations that we are typically interested in? So, so typically, and even very prominently today, we see research or studies that treat sex and gender as the same thing. Yes. And so we use the term male uh, to mean maybe masculine. Um, we don't define what is meant by masculine or feminine. And, and we use these terms interchangeably. For me, I, I, I personally like to use the word queer and maybe I should say something a little bit about that. I like this word. I use it lovingly um, and very generally to refer to anything that deviates specifically from an assumed cisgender heterosexual norm. And so to me, this is a very ambiguous and encompassing loving word. And it also, it's something I came to use um, to describe my own identity and experiences as as I started to learn more about LGBTQ plus spectrum, that it encapsulates much more than sexuality and sexual attraction. It's also more than reproduction, reproductive abilities and and functioning. And it's more also about um, individual senses of self and expression. And it's, it's just such a, a gigantic spectrum, a, a multi-dimensional, eye-opening kind of um, experience to, to to get to know more people and, and to get to have chosen family who are transgender or who are intersex um, or gender non-conforming. And, and then to, to run into collaborators like Judy Broy, Stephen Perry, who is a, consist- a statistical consultant at Cornell, you know, he, he was approaching us saying that there were um, people visiting him for for consulting experiences, and they wanted to be inclusive. They they recognized diversity in human experiences and expressions, but um, didn't know how. And so that's really is what got this work started. As I was reading the article, I was thinking about so for my dissertation research, um, I part of my work was a survey that I designed, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. spent a lot of time sort of thinking about how to frame the question because I separated sex and gender in my survey, but thinking through like how what categories and this was in you know, 2014, so it's, you know, well before the conversation you're having now, but thinking through, like, how do I frame this in a way that is useful 
to what I need to understand, but is also inclusive because, you know, there's always that tension with survey research is if you frame a question in a way that's off-putting to a respondent, they won't participate, right? And so trying to create this atmosphere where as many people will participate as possible, it just sort of made me think back to that struggle I had of trying to figure out how do I measure, how do I get at what I want, and also sort of make sure everyone feels like they are included somewhere in yeah. what I what I have here in this tool. I think that that's a very common um, experience for, for modern day researchers. Um, and that's why we, we wanted to publish this article and, and try to disseminate it as widely as possible is to say that there are there are ways to do that, statistically sound ways to be inclusive and respectful of, of different experiences and identities. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe I can add here again, going back to the, the, the problem that I had at hand. And one way uh, we thought about solving this is just simply introducing a field called gender identity. So we had sex at birth and we had gender identity. And, and if you now combine both of these, you now have a tool to identify transgender subjects. And, and thinking about this in clinical research, you're really focused on why really you need this data. And I think this, this is something we talk a lot about in our paper that really, really think hard. What is that you really want to know? It, it's not just a question you lightly throw at a patient or, or an individual uh, in, in a survey, but really thinking the, the why behind it, especially the science, why, why this, this answer should help you. Mm -hmm. And therefore, formulate a strategy exactly how do you extract that information uh, in my experience uh, building trials now for more than seven years what what i see is these patients when they come to uh, a healthcare expert or, or a doctor they're vulnerable they want to be respected they want to be treated but they also want to be heard and and, and hearing from a doctor oh i don't really know how this works for you because there is no data it's not always very reassuring and, and this we heard over and over again from patient surveys. And, and there is really a need for us to step in and change the story here. I think that's a really powerful statement to say, how does this answer help you? How does knowledge of this, of what, what is this, what do you really want to know from measuring this variable? And, uh, and I, I thought that in your paper, you talk about this, this kind of uh, the different aspects of sex and gender identity. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned a couple being sex recorded at birth and gender identity, but then also primary and secondary sex characteristics. And, I, mm -hmm. you know, I found that just by by enumerating kind of these ca the, the categories that were reflected there, it's it's kind of it's sort of helping you focus, helping a researcher or others just thinking about about these types of data to focus on what kind of questions you really want to answer. So could you give us kind of like, you know, sort of a, a little bit more of an example, maybe of a, of a bad way that, this, that, that a question like this could be framed, as well as then a more productive way a question like this could be framed? Yeah, absolutely. And I can maybe also plug another paper I'm working on. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm publishing in the, the JSM proceedings uh, where I, I presented, here are some common ways in which people try to include both gender identity and sex information, um, and and how do they compare to, say, you know, the ASA ethical guidelines for statistical practice? And and then I, I propose a, a solution as, as well. So I, I think that there are several different types of ways of accounting for gender or and or sex information in, in a study. I think there are attempts that try to be inclusive, but they actually aren't. 
an example of this, in my opinion, is having this kind of two-step two questioning procedure, but but the responses are, are invalidating to certain identities. So for instance, um, one question could be, what is your sex uh, at birth, male or female? Um, and maybe want to include intersex. And then another question, uh, what is your gender identity? But when respondents are only given, you know, choose one of the following, and the options are man, woman, transgender, non-binary, and then add in whatever you'd like, that's not really inclusive because if, if you take the perspective, let's say I'm a transgender woman, I know how to answer what my sex assigned at birth was. That, that is a clearly defined question. When, I, when it comes to the question, what is my gender identity, I identify as a woman. I definitely want to answer that question as I identify as a woman. But there's also this response here, just trans. And so it's, it's you know, it, there's a, a bit of confusion there. Are you? So, so I think there are, there are those questions that um, are questioning procedures that try to be inclusive, but, but actually end up not really being inclusive. There are those that, that try to be inclusive, but then aren't reproducible, or you're going to run into small sample size problems that you didn't anticipate because you realize that a lot of this comes to design um, as well, statistical design, but some attempts to be inclusive but end up not being re reproducible include open-ended questionings, right? So what is your gender identity? Fill in the blank with your own words. Um, that is, is definitely inclusive and respectful of anybody's identity, but that doesn't mean that people are answering under the same operating definitions of, of common terms. And so statistically, you're not getting reproducible kind of accurate measurements necessarily. And then, of course, there are, you know, is research that does not attempt at all to be inclusive, either because, you know, researchers are ignorant of or ignore the issue of conflating gender and sex, or, you know, there's also a very strong pull to, to stick with tradition to treat gender and sex interchangeably as it has been in Western uh, science and medicine for, for so long. But at the end of the day, I, I think that this, this example of, of how do we ask relevant and inclusive kind of questions, um, it, it kind of gets down to a failure to, to critically assess what is our variable of interest? What are our variable choices? And how do we define um, meaningful levels within, say, a categorical variable? So um, in, in my, my JSM proceedings paper, the working title of which is Ethical Considerations for Data Involving Human Gender and Sex Variables, I do propose another questioning method, and I'll let Duty talk about the one that was appropriate for her and her work and, and in a clinical context, but, but not all research is, is clinical, right? Not all research needs to know about reproductive um, organs or capabilities. So in, in my JSM proceedings paper, I, I propose a sort of select all that apply question format that I think is, is worth considering um, and could be very powerful across many different um, applications. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to Suzanne Thornton and Duty Roy about inclusive measurement of sex and gender data. Suzanne, you mentioned that sort of one of the one of the roadblocks to having more inclusive measurements has has been in part this clinging to tradition right where mm -hmm. this is how we've measured things in the past we can we can you know compare this over time like you know it's 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 tried and true so i wonder what has been the response to this significance article and the work that you've been doing in relation to this because again when i was doing this dissertation research in 2014 the reason i mentioned it is that the conversation i was having was something that i think a lot of people who i was connected to wasn't 
were not having. They were not thinking about, you know, why are you worried about measuring it that way? This is how we always measure it, right? And so it does feel like the fact that you have this article out sort of seems like an opening that maybe wasn't there. Yeah. I, I definitely think that as in general sort of uh, public health, sex ed, and, and sort of general societal trends towards trying to accept and understand um, different human experiences, I think definitely makes this a, a different conversation than it would have been five, 10 years ago. The response that I've received has been largely very interested um, and very excited and curious you know, I, I, this is something I try to incorporate in, in my classroom discussions when we talk about categorical data analysis. I, I talk about how, you know, well, we as the researchers, we choose what are the levels um, in, in many, if not most, categorical variables that we analyze and how that subjectivity might influence our conclusions, our statistical conclusions. And, and I think this gender and, and sex conflation is a good example of this. And I, I have had maybe a, a little bit of pushback from some students who, you know, maybe aren't expecting to, to question the status quo in, in a statistics class. But largely from the statistical community, I've had responses that are very enthusiastic and are really relieved to see this issue being presented and openly discussed in a search for better science and, and better uh, treatment and respect for our um, study subjects. So again, uh, going back to my world uh, of drug, de <laughs> drug development, uh, one of the one of the responses has always been encouraging and, and positive and saying, oh, you guys did this, this is awesome. What remains the, the common standard conversation, and I hear this a lot from my colleagues, is, oh, you know, it's so hard to change the standard. So drug development is very, very standardized, uh, especially when it comes to data collection. And, and this is like standardized by this body called CDISC. And, and it is apparently very difficult to influence and, and, and you know, uh, have change, have them change uh, some of these ways of collecting data, introducing new fields. This is not easy. So, so the example that I was providing earlier I was able to convince my chief medical officer of the, mm -hmm. of the company to let me do this for all trials that the company is doing. And I was super happy uh, for maybe like a couple of months until I realized, well, there is a long way ahead. <laughs> it's just about one company. Right. What, what about the rest of what, yeah. what about the rest of the rest of the trials? And so, so one thing that really came out of this was finding another really interested collaborator from Roche. Uh, and and mm. Godwin and I, uh, we now have moved this conversation more central, uh, for example, hosting roundtables uh, in key conferences. So just last week, uh, I was in DC uh, hosting this roundtable in the, the ASA Balfam regulatory workshop, uh, which happens once a year and is mostly well attended by regulators as well as uh, industry folks. And there was a really interested bunch of people from FDA, from different other sponsors. And we were having this conversation and believe this or not, the CDISC came up again. People were like, this is so hard to change the standards. Mm -hmm. So so what is very clear from my perspective is that this conversation needs to go on and in, in a meaningful manner. And there is a lot that we can do uh, to, to change the story, but this will need work. You know, I found that your consideration and practical guidelines were, were really interesting. To Just to, to read them out again, identifying relevant information, the center inclusivity and respect, and protect the participant in the data. 
And, and as, you, as you all have been talking about this today, I, I find myself thinking, I, I can't imagine the FDA would, would, would not be interested. I mean, could you imagine, you know, you're collecting data that's, that's just inherently uh, noisy because of measurement error or yeah. non-response or, or collecting data or not collecting information that might hel help you identify particular strata that are, are at much higher risk of some adverse outcome. It's, it seems that there's a strong story to be told for why this type of, of better measurement is good. You know, can, can you kind of just weigh in a little bit on this? Am I, am I reading this right? You, you are. You are absolutely reading this right. I think we, we saw the interest from the regulators. We saw they were sitting at the table willing to discuss with us. I think it really depends on how flexible we all are about changing guidelines. Mm. And and when it comes to guidelines, people really take them as they're written in stone. Mm. Mm -hmm. And and but, but the problem is is we're developed fifty years ago, mm. where, where this conversation about these minority populations didn't exist much. But now they do, and and we want to think about them, and we want to think about them as patients who need our help and support. And and therefore, I personally feel that no, they should not be thought about as written in stone. We should reevaluate whether they're applicable today or, or, or not. And, and I know this probably applies to many of the conversations that, 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 that comes up. Uh, but, but that's really where we need to discuss more and, and you know, have a dialogue which can be ongoing about what really is needed. Uh, so really from my perspective, after this, uh, I came back from the workshop, I was like, yeah, we really need to just find someone in CEDICS. Find whoever is sitting in that committee and put that person on the table and start conversing with them because it has to start somewhere. And then that's really the intent from, from our end uh, to move the needle. And I, I want to take a moment here, if we can, and just reflect on what Duty and Godwin Young are doing and, and people like Duty are doing. That's, this is where the rubber meets the road. They're actually trying to change conventions in the places where they work. I'm, I have a very different sort of more like general, I guess, abstract kind of perspective as an academic. I'm thinking about, you know, kind of uh, not just clinical settings, but also demographic settings and so on and so forth. And trying to make sense of this from a, a, a theoretical world. But the kind of work that Duty has been doing and is continuing to do, I think, is the hardest kind of work. Um, and it is so incredibly encouraging to me to have the opportunity to work with her and other people who are committed to doing better science, um, being better researchers, and, and changing things that are so challenging and deeply ingrained into our, our entire culture. Susie, thank you. You you inspire me every day too. So so we are we are more or less on the same page here. Oh, thanks, Duty. <laughs> so so Duty, I had a, a, just a, your your response about this sort of background organization and kind of the way things have been done. Uh, are questions about race and ethnicity now the same as they were thirty years ago? They they have significantly changed, but there are definite gaps. Hmm. Actually, this is, this is interesting that you bring this up. When I was trying to have this internal conversation within my company, uh, I still hadn't found my guts to talk to the, the chief medical officer because he's a big guy. And, <laughs> and I was kind of like talking to, to my peers and maybe my immediate supervisors that what should we do? And I heard the story. Oh, you know, it took like 10 years to change the race conversation. What do you expect? Mm. And, and, mm. and, and that was somebody's way of telling me, being trying to be helpful, but also keeping me grounded. And I was like, I'm just not having it. I don't have 10 years. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, great. Good for you. <laughs> uh -huh. 
I wonder what advice you have, Suzanne, because you are te- teaching stats, and it sounds like trying to push this. What advice do you have for statistics educators or people who might teach, again, survey methodology? Again, I never took, I took a stats class in my, in my PhD, but never in a stats program. What advice would you have for these educators who are trying to help students think about these measurement issues in these particular ways, which again, for some of them coming out of high school where they would have had a stats class or, or things like this, it wouldn't have been something they probably tussled with quite so much. To me, this is, um, and I, I'm at a liberal arts college, and so I think this is a very sort of liberal artsy way of answering your question. But to me, this is this is sort of an example of where statistics intersects with other disciplines and other fields of study. And that includes history, sociology, psychology, biology, you know, the whole the whole world that we could study. So I think as an, as an educator, there's, uh, and as a statistics educator in particular, there's a bit of a, a balance that I feel we have to weigh between showing the power of quantitative analysis and statistical conclusions, gathering data in a kind of controlled way, talking about what information we can and conclusions we can draw that are supported by observable data. But there's also a balance with kind of reality, which is this does not answer questions with absolute certainty. Um, it does not, uh, there are assumptions that we make every step of the way in doing any sort of quantitative analysis, um, even from just assessment items, right, on a quiz or something. So there are assumptions about what is measurable, how that measurement might be reflected, um, how we could represent it numerically. There are assumptions every step of the way. And so it's less about kind of convincing students that, that oh, I have an answer, I have the way to do things, I have the best practices, and more about what kind of questions do I need to be able to answer, right, about what I want my data to, to be describing? What are the important features of the data? What are important observable features? And how do, how do I describe that in a, in a coherent way? So it's, I, it's this kind of balance, I suppose. And, and also this is kind of one of the reasons why the, the title of our article is, is not best practices for gender and sex data, but it's towards best practices. Because our methods, our statistical methods of um, analysis, computational approaches, they, they evolve with society. It's the same thing about what kind of data we can collect, what kind of variables we might be interested in. This evolves um, and, and grows as our society changes. And so there's not necessarily going to be a a best absolute way to do things all the time, as as we statisticians know all too well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Suzanne and Duty, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you guys for having us. Very much appreciate this opportunity. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.